You know, right now I'm in two long-term committed relationships that honestly probably don't look that different from your monogamous relationship when you really boil things down. Um, and I'm not out on the weekend, you know, hooking up with someone every single weekend. I'm not going to orgies all the time. Um, but then the other half of that conversation is, but you know what, if I was hooking up with people every weekend and if I was going to orgies all the time, like that's okay too. <laughs> you know, like again, if I'm still being mindful and ethical in the way that I use my sexuality, like there's nothing wrong with that either. Like if you explore polyamory and it is for you mostly a sex thing, that's also okay too. Again, as long as you're being healthy and mindful and ethical with it. That was Dedeker Winston, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 129. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I can't tell you how glad I am that you're listening in today. And I want to take a minute right here at the top of the show to quickly share some appreciation, give out a little thank you. Thank you for listening to this show. I know there's tons of podcasts out there. Thank you for valuing honest conversations. Thank you for being open to hearing from guests whose lived experiences and opinions might be different from your own. That's huge. And that's what we do here. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking two minutes or less probably to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Seriously, it's just huge help in spreading the word and helping new people find us. So I really appreciate you taking a second to do that. And thank you, thank you so much for supporting and funding the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before, and I am so grateful for that. I have a really wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but first, in case you're new to this show, I'd love to quickly explain what it is that we do here. So at the heart of it, my guests and I are really committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic bullet 10-day six-step life hack plans for anything. (laughs) As a recovering self-help junkie myself, I am totally over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even what brought you here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and tons of others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics. We talk about work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. It's definitely an adult podcast that covers adult subjects, which means that we do often use adult language, so there's your little language warning, Um, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable, and sometimes it is. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and always will be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. You've probably heard me say this before, but I really do believe that where we spend our money, how we spend our money, that's a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. So when you support this show, you're saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth-tellers for truth-tellers, 
And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, which is super fun, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. It's probably, I mean, I'm, I'm vulnerable on the show for sure, but the weekly emails are where I share a lot of my real life as it's happening. Um, and you'll also be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and other upcoming events in the future. There are three different funding levels that you can see over on Patreon. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. Everything that I just mentioned is at the $8 level. Um, up at the $25 level, we do live group Google Hangouts. And oh my gosh, those are so much fun. But again, you can check all that out over on Patreon. So one more time, it's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Dedeker Winston. Dedeker was raised to be a wholesome Christian conservative, but later opted to be a sex-positive polyamory activist, relationship coach, and nude model. She currently provides one-on-one coaching services for people transitioning into non-monogamy, and she's one of the hosts of the Multi-Amory podcast, which is my new obsession. It's such a good show. Dedeker has been sought out as an expert for Cosmopolitan, Glamour, Newsweek, Vice, Bustle, and Ask Men, and she also appeared on the Fox television show Utopia. Her book, The Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory, Everything You Need to Know About Open Relationships, Non-Monogamy, and Alternative Love, which I also loved, is out now. In this episode, Dedeker shares how and why she transitioned from monogamy to polyamory and goes into all the benefits that she's felt since practicing this relationship structure. We talk about the logistical side of having multiple partners, the myths and destructive messages that we've been given about sex and relationships, and who might benefit from opening up their own relationship. We also dig into a conversation about the difference between friendship and romantic love, and through it all, Dedeker is open, honest, compassionate, and a true advocate for each of us making the best choices for ourselves. I've been wanting to get Dedeker on the show for a while now, and I absolutely loved chatting with her, so I hope that you enjoy it too. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Dedeker, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Oh God, you have no idea. I'm so excited. <laughs> I woke up this morning and I was just like, okay, control yourself. <laughs> I like had such a hard time prepping for this because I'm like, well, you don't have time to ask her 1500 questions. So maybe <laughs> narrow it down. Uh-huh, uh-huh. No, it's so funny when you create content because I don't know for myself, I mean, obviously like you have to promote your own stuff to a certain extent, you know, like we like my podcast has like, you know, a tiny bit of a social media presence and the book has a tiny bit of a social media presence, but I'm, I've never been someone who really pushes the self-promotion thing super hard. And so when essentially when, when people who are not my family or close friends know my stuff, I'm always like, Oh, Oh, Oh my goodness. Oh wow. How surprising and how honoring and how exciting. It's always funny too, like how my question for listeners is always, okay, well, how did you find me? Right. Was it through like where down the rabbit hole of the internet do people come across, you know, different work. Um, so what's my first question for you? Tell me something that you're totally obsessed with right now. Oh gosh. Um, 
I'm a little bit embarrassed to say it, but I'm actually really obsessed with Hamilton right now. And I realize I'm like three years too late to the game. <laughs> um, I know I'm really late to the game. I, uh, but I didn't listen to it to the first time until literally two weeks ago. Um, because to be totally honest, like I'm definitely a hipster at heart where like, if something's popular, I'm immediately like, uh, I don't want to like it. I don't even want to give it a chance if it's popular, you know? Um, and then I did finally break down and listen to it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is a really good show. Um, people were so, not wrong <laughs> people were not wrong the, the population was not wrong as it turns out so now um and now it just happens like i'm i'm in portland for a week and it just ha- so happens that the touring production is in portland during the same exact week um so i'm like getting up every morning to try to get into the lottery to get ten dollar hamilton tickets um and i just i don't know like i am experiencing so much joy having found this and i feel like all my friends are like yes we know like we tried to tell you two or three years ago and you didn't listen um but I feel like that happens to me a lot that I resist and resist and resist and resist popular things and then when I finally do then it's kind of like the ship's already sailed on it yeah I totally get that the thing that popped into my mind when you were talking about that that's sort of how I was with Harry Potter I didn't read it until I was Uh, an adult and I read the whole series in less than a week I think I like basically quit my life for a week and I was like oh my god why didn't anybody tell me and everyone's like we we did we we did tell you (laughs) Like, did you, did you know how good this book was? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we did. We did actually. That's that's so funny. I was in London last summer and, um, I, the same thing when you were saying about trying to get up every morning and get the tickets, that's how I was the, um, studio tour, the Warner Brothers studio Uh, tour where all the movies were filmed there. And, um, I wound up, I was like the last day that I was there. I wound up getting a ticket sort of last minute and it was, I mean, it was the best day of my life. I was there for five (laughs) hours. I cried three times. I easily could have been there for another two or three hours. So highly recommend the, uh, Harry Potter Warner Brothers studio tour (laughs) in Leeston for anyone. (laughs) Nice. Well, okay. To, to kind of, uh, to help like something that I've come up with with Hamilton to help me justify um, being so into it now, so behind the fact is like, I have to be honest at this time in history and actually for a number of years, I've been really, really disillusioned with my own country, you know, with the United States and especially with everything that's going on right now. And especially since I've been traveling a lot and living in other countries for the last two and a half years that I've slowly, but surely really become you know, expatriate in every sense of the word and, you know, kind of always honestly dumping on America or complaining about the news or complaining about the administration to all of my friends who aren't American. Um, And there was something about actually listening to Hamilton that helped me reconnect to kind of the sense of like, wow, actually, you know, the origin of the United States, while it definitely wasn't perfect, it was kind of this really amazing, never before seen kind of thing. And, you know, the amazing thing that Lin-Manuel Miranda has done with this show in having a commentary on immigrants being a huge part of the fabric of of what it means to be American, it actually kind of helped re-inspire a little bit more positive feelings for the United States, especially in a time when it feels like everything's just kind of falling apart. Yeah. I didn't come on the show to talk politics, so no, I don't no. really want to go down that road. No, and but. that's, yeah, that's fine. But I, I know what you mean. It's like, I, and that's sort of how I feel about the like, things find you at the right time, right? Like maybe you connect with this more now than you would have when it first came out or whatever, right. you know? So right. yeah, I feel that way too. Um, all right. Well, if you don't, if we don't want to talk about politics, let's go in a totally <laughs> different direction. Yeah. You shared in your bio that you're a nude model. And I have questions. So I want to hear the story of your very first nude modeling gig. Tell me that story. Oh, my goodness. It was over 10 years ago now when I was still in college. Um, 
And uh, so at that time, I was, you know, like a poor college student. And my campus had, uh, I don't even know what it was called, some kind of like employment resource center where essentially they would put up job postings for full-time or part-time or temporary gigs. Um, And the college's art department was looking for nude models for their sketch class, specifically for their life drawing class. Um, and uh, I don't know why I applied for it because it, like up to that point, it's not like I was a nudist. It's not like I was super comfortable with my body. And I had also been raised evangelical Christian. So I wasn't really raised in an environment that was very, let's say nude positive or body positive or sex positive or anything like that. Um, and I, I don't know, there was just something that compelled me. It was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to apply for this job. Um, and I got it. And, um, and especially cause at that time it also paid like a good two or $3 higher than the minimum wage at that time. Um, so it seemed like a pretty sweet gig. Um, and then, yeah, so I started doing nude modeling for the life drawing classes at my college's art department. Um, and I loved it. And it was actually the important thing for me is that it was a huge turning point in essentially forcing me to get comfortable with my own body because I found that when I was there and when I was after I'd taken off my clothes and I was in a pose and I was there in front of 40 strangers staring at me for, you know, like two hours, um, you know, of course you're just like sitting there thinking, 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 and, you know, maybe thoughts would start to creep in of like, oh gosh, I don't like the way my stomach looks in this position or, oh gosh, like maybe they can see some cellulite, but I realized like, well, I'm stuck here for two hours and there's nothing I can do. Like I can't drop down and do a bunch of push-ups and crunches and suddenly make my body feel better to me. And so I just got to accept it as it is because there's nothing I can do. I can't just stand here for two hours hating myself and hating my body because I'll drive myself nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, of course, you know, since then, you know, I think as far as my own self-image and how I feel about my body, like I think like all of us, there's some good days and bad days, but that was a huge turning point for me in just needing to accept my body as it is, regardless of what my particular thoughts or feelings in that moment are. Did you have anyone that gave you any tips? Like, so you got hired for this thing and it was just like, come into this room, get naked. Like, was there any kind of brief at the beginning or like, Hey, here's some, I don't know. <laughs> Clearly I have no tr- idea. I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't like, I don't know. I think it was, it was just kind of like, you know, make sure that you stretch and eat beforehand. Cause I, I had a couple of times where like, I didn't eat breakfast and I got like all woozy, you know? So it was just like stretch beforehand, eat beforehand, like put on lotion beforehand. Cause that helps you to be less itchy. So you're less likely to get like random itches that you can't scratch. Um, and then just relax. And I was even told by the professor of the class, you know, if a pose is, you know, especially if you're in a reclining pose and you fall asleep, like no problem whatsoever. And that was actually great. Cause the class was at like you know, eight in the morning. And so for me as a college student, being able to show up at eight in the morning, take my clothes off and then just fall asleep naked in front of 30 people was actually not too bad. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> naked nap time. <laughs> yeah. And, and it got paid for it too. So yeah. it was like, you know, win, win, win all around. That's hilarious. It's interesting to hear you say that that made you more comfortable with your body. I'm not surprised. I had, I mean, a, a tiny experience that I can relate to this. It was about five years ago, I think I did. Um, and just for me, not like for anything else, a sort of boudoir photo shoot. Right. Mm -hmm. And part of it for me, it wasn't a body confidence thing. It was, um, I have always felt really uncomfortable having my picture taken, um, or being the center of attention 
attention in that way, yeah. I guess. Um, yeah. And it was just something that I don't know if a friend, suge- a photographer friend suggested it or it kind of came on my radar and I thought, huh, that might be a fun thing to do. And I wound up working with these, you know, two female photographers who were incredible and it was like a mm. very positive experience oh, and the photos were beautiful. And I was recently just thinking like, huh, I think I want to do something like that again, that it was such like a, I like felt this boost for days afterwards. And now I have these like incredible professional, like super sexy pictures. Right, right. Um, I think, and you may have learned this from doing your photo shoot, but definitely something that I've also learned now in doing like 10 years of, you know, not just art classes, but also photo shoots since then. It also really gave me a perspective into like the fact that like models, like, you know, professional models are people who know how to put their bodies in a position that looks the most flattering. Um, because, you know, like when I get a bunch of photos from the shoot and I'm looking through like the proofs or something like that, it's like, I know which pictures are like, oh, I posed really well in this one and which pictures I'm like, oh, I posed really badly in this one. And I think for me, it taught me like, oh, like basically everybody has some bad angles, you know, um, even if you're scrolling through Instagram and you see fitness models or whoever who look just like perfect and amazing and gorgeous. I'm like, I can guarantee you she's got a bad angle and she's got a pose that makes her look Um, you know, maybe not so appealing or maybe not so fit or whatever. And that's okay. You know, like none of us look 100% perfect all the time. Um, So I think it really helped me also be able to look at any other photo that has someone modeling in it. And instead of the first thought being, one of like, oh gosh, this person looks so perfect and I don't look like that. And why do I not look that like that? You know, just to be able to kind of take it more with a grain of salt, I guess, and to understand like all of this is a little bit of an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah. So this similar topic has come up in other episodes of like this being like the reason that it's so important to, if we're just talking, you know, like social media, like you mentioned Instagram or something, following such a, like a wider range of people, right? I think like the more mm-hmm. different types of bodies we look at and we see, right, that it sort of gets us out of the, like, this is the like very specific thin ideal. And this is the only way right. that like everyone should aspire to look. And yeah. Right. And, so something else, the, the last thing I wanted to, to ask about this, I was, I saw on your modeling profile that you said that you'd rather be nude than wear a bikini <laughs> or a lingerie and I was curious on the why behind that um yeah that is a, a funny thing I've just yeah I've never been a bikini wearing person you know other than the times that I have to um or you know a fancy lingerie wearing person and if photographers ask me to bring those things to a shoot I'm always like oh like no I really don't want to um I'm not entirely sure why I I think there's something about Usually if a photographer is asking you to bring a bikini or lingerie to shoot in, that means that the photographer wants to shoot maybe something that is more, you know, typical boudoir or they want to do more like sexy implied, like maybe half nude kind of stuff. And like, while the sexy thing is, is nice. And I think especially like what you did, like doing a boudoir photo shoot for yourself. I think that's, that's really great. Um, but I just found myself personally, I'm much more interested in exploring shooting the naked form outside of just, Hey everyone, a naked girl, you know, or Hey everyone, like a sexy looking girl, because we see so much of that. Um, like I, I just get so much more fulfillment when I'm shooting and it's, it's like, what weird ass shape can I get my body in? What weird semi yoga acrobatic pose can I do? Like, where can I crunch myself into the set that we're on that, is maybe like a little bit disturbing or a little bit weird or a little bit off-putting. So I think it kind of comes down to that is like, as far as nudity goes, I'm really interested in separating nudity from being a strictly sexual thing. Hmm. Um, Yeah. 
you know, even, even though like bodies are sexy, um, all kinds of bodies are sexy, but I do think that to a certain extent in Western culture, we've done ourselves a little bit of a disservice in strictly associating the naked body with something sexual. And since it's sexual, therefore it means it's a little bit dirty or wrong, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah. I was just, I, I, when I read that in your bio about that, I'm like, okay, like this is interesting. This is <laughs> an experience that I don't know that anyone else that I know has had. And yeah, so it always makes me curious. Yeah. Um, so I, I was telling you about this off air, but I found your work, um, through your book, the smart girls guide to polyamory. Um, I had gone on a sort of deep dive. My MO tends to be, I like find a topic that I'm really interested in or obsessed with. And then I'm like, how much media can I consume about this one topic? Right. Like I have no, Uh I'm not, I don't have moderate interests, I guess I should say. (laughs) All I want to do is read and talk about this thing until it's like the next thing. And so I had read, um, some of the other, I guess, like big popular non-monogamy books, um, that have been recommended by other guests on this show, um, specifically the ethical slut and, um, Amazon was like, hey, if you like that, that book, you, you'll probably like this book. And they were correct. I loved your book and then went down like the rabbit hole of your podcast and all of your work. And um, yeah, I'm excited to get into just a topic about or a conversation about polyamory because it's come up like lightly in a couple of other episodes. Um, Evian Whitney brought it up in her episode and um, Melissa Fabello brought it up in her episode, but we haven't done one that's like, specifically about it. So I'm excited to uh, dive in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is what I do for a living. So if, you know, if you don't cut me off at the two hour mark, I will keep talking about it. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> Just, you, know. you heard it here. She's willing to come back. <laughs> um, so I guess to get started, I think it would be helpful to do maybe some like term definitions or at least like create the foundation, um, especially for folks who aren't familiar. So can you talk, and obviously with the caveat of you're not like the capital E expert, like what Mm -hmm. you say goes. So obviously I'm just asking you for your perspective and your experience. I'm not asking you to like speak on behalf of the polyamory community, right? Definitely. Um, But can you define what polyamory means, like what it is and isn't maybe? Sure. Um, so again, you know, you know, the way that especially the millennial generation handles labeling in terms and words um, is really difficult. But generally speaking, polyamory, the term polyamory refers to the practice of having multiple romantic relationships at the same time with full knowledge and consent of everyone involved. That's the super duper simple explanation. And um, it starts to get a little bit more complicated because there's basically a billion different ways that people choose to practice polyamory with a lot of different nuances and a lot of different subtleties in the way that they practice. Can you give some examples? Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I mean, you know, just to give the base example of that, of just having multiple romantic relationships, you know, is um, I can use an example of my own life. You know, I have my partner, Jace, and I also have my partner, Alex. Um, I've been with my partner, Jace, for almost five years now. I've been with Alex over two years now. Um, I refer to them as partners. I guess, you know, looking from the outside, some people would say I have two boyfriends, um, which is true, but I still kind of tend to stay away from the term boyfriend just because of how emotionally, well, I don't know about emotionally, just because of how charged it is um, using that term. But so that's my personal life right now is I have two boyfriends. And then sometimes occasionally, if I have the time or the energy, I go on dates with 
new people every once in a while. Um, another way that some people practice, um, there's a lot of people who identify as asexual who have come to the polyamory community because often asexual people are still interested in having a romantic relationship. Um, but within a polyamorous context, it means that, you know, if they're a partner with someone who is not asexual, that partner is still able to have multiple partners, maybe get their sexual needs met elsewhere while still being able to stay in a relationship with the person that that's asexual. Um, some people practice in a way, um, where they kind of choose to maybe keep their relationships a little bit more at arm's length. Um, you know, maybe somebody like doesn't ever want to live with somebody or cohabit with somebody or have children with somebody, but they still want to have like multiple relationships. And so maybe they'll practice that way. Some people want to have something like a triad where it's three people and we're all in a relationship with each other. We all have sex with each other and maybe we all move in together and just have a fantastic, happy time. Um, there's so many different ways that people do it. And that's always what's fascinated me is that every time, I mean, I've been doing this for almost 10 years, um, not only personally, but then also I've spent several years, you know, working as a coach, working with people, being an educator, um, on this topic. And every time I think that I've seen every possible incarnation of polyamory or non-monogamy, someone shows up who's doing it an entirely different new way that I haven't seen, which is really mm -hmm. exciting and inspiring to me. Yeah. I, I mean, I have a lot of personal <laughs> feelings and thoughts on this subject that I'm sure will come up as we're talking, but I think for me, I'm always a little bit skeptical of any social construct that we're told, like, this is the only way to do things and mm -hmm. that it's sort of explicitly and not as explicitly like uh, baked into the culture of this is the quote right way. And I think monogamy right. definitely fits that description. Mm -hmm. And I, it's only through, you know, people like you work like yours, some of these other things that I've finally started looking into to be like, actually, that doesn't necessarily make sense to me, right? Mm, that mm -hmm. this idea that there's one relationship model or structure and that has to work for everyone, like that's not how right. we feel about everything else. There's not one career right. path for everyone. There's not, you know, one lifestyle choice for everyone. And like in this, but in this way, I don't know. So for me, I feel like part of my, I guess, like giving myself permission to start to look into this was like, I actually don't know that it makes sense, which doesn't mean that monogamy isn't awesome for some people. But I think mm -hmm. there's a difference between consciously choosing monogamy versus right. the sort of like Disney princess fairy tale. This is what we're told. This is the only way to do things. Everything else is wrong. Like, I don't know, that made me kind of raise my eyebrows and be like, mm, I I actually don't know that I think that's true, mm, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And actually, um, we recently did a podcast episode about conscious monogamy, um, which is a fascinating topic. And unfortunately, there's I don't feel like there's enough resources or enough people talking about conscious monogamy out there. Um, you know, when we were doing prep for that episode, when I was trying to research it, um, like the only places that were talking about conscious monogamy were blogs that were mostly about polyamory, um, surprisingly enough. But it is that it's, it's um, you know, of course, in talking about polyamory or non-monogamy, you know, it doesn't mean that anyone's trying to say that means monogamy is bad or wrong or that no one should do it. Um, but that idea of being able to consciously choose it because you know that that's what's best for you, you know that that's what's going to make you the happiest rather than ending up in monogamy by default, which is where a lot of us uh, just kind of get dumped without 
questioning it whatsoever and, you know, without really examining whether it's the right choice for us or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's always a benefit you know, even I can see this being a topic that people like sort of get their guards up about really quickly, right? Or get defensive about. Mm -hmm. But I think there's always a benefit in asking yourself sort of maybe even hard questions or digging into like why you're making the choices that you're making, even if at the end of the day, you still wind up choosing, let's say the same relationship structure or the same, you know, fill in the blank, whatever else. That I think there's, there's so much freedom in choosing it, like you said, consciously, like choosing it on purpose and then also sort of defining what that looks like for you. And still like basically every relationship that I've ever gotten into, we don't have kind of like talks about what a relationship agreement might look Mm -hmm. like or what even Mm -hmm. monogamy means to me versus what it means to them. Like these things that as I've started to listen, like listen to your work and think about this, I'm like, oh, huh. We just sort of assume that everyone's on the same page about what that means, but you know, they're not. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. That's the thing is, um, even even um, you can dig down to the fact that when it comes to the definition of something like cheating, for instance, that that gets defined differently by so many different people. You know, we don't all have the same definition of what counts as cheating. You know, for some people who are in a quote unquote traditional monogamous relationship, some people may think like, oh, well, if you make out with someone at a party, but as long as you don't have sex with them, that's fine. That's not cheating. You know, that doesn't bother me. And another person may think if you look at another person who's not me, then that's cheating. And those two people may end up together, never have that conversation until someone kind of crosses a boundary and makes a mistake. And then that's how they find out. Um, But, uh, but I think that's the thing is like as many different ways that people do polyamory, people actually do monogamy in very different ways in kind of that same style. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree totally with what you said about that. You don't necessarily realize it's a boundary until it's been crossed because you never thought, because we all see the world through our own eyes. If you think something's fine, you maybe assume it's fine with someone else. Like even I feel like the the cheating things is a good example, even as much as like, is it okay to watch porn without each other? Like masturbation, like having sexual conversations with other people. Like there's just so many different like facets of this that I feel like are so unfortunately taboo that we don't talk about. And once you start talking about it, I don't know, I feel like like now I can't go back. All I want to do is talk about this. Right. Oh gosh. It's definitely, uh, I mean, I definitely found for me when I was first exploring this topic for myself that there was definitely a sense of, of <laughs> a kind of a sense of, I can't unlearn what I have learned now. Um, it was a uh, I mean, this is going to sound dramatic that for me, it was kind of like a seeing the matrix kind of moment of realizing like, oh my goodness, like, you know, the things that were taught about relationships and about monogamy and about the way that things should be, you know, it's like, that's the water that we, the fish are swimming in. And, um, we don't even realize that we're in water, right? You know, all of these cultural messages that we get and then to break out of that and to start seeing like, wow, we get taught this very specific thing that maybe is or is not right for particular people that that realization is really hard to um, to unrealize, <laughs> essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, so will you tell me the origin story for you personally? Like, do you remember the first time that you heard the term polyamory or got exposed to this work? Yeah, Um I mean, the the first time I heard the word polyamory was actually many, many years, I think, after my first uh, polyamorous thought, which was um, when I was in high school, I was very young, I was maybe 14, 15, and I was first starting to explore and play around with adult relationships, you know, um, as many of us do at that time. And uh, I found that, like, I developed 
these simultaneous crushes on two people that I was kind of starting to fall in love with two people at the same time. And that just blew my mind because up to that point through my entire childhood, my only messages about love and falling in love and relationships were either from Disney movies or from the church. And both of those sources essentially had been telling me, you know, if you fall in love with someone, like if you're truly in love with that person, you won't fall in love with someone else. If you fall in love with someone, you won't even see anybody else. And so for me to suddenly be developing feelings for two people at once was really confusing. And um, unfortunately, really, it ended up being somewhat destructive for me at the time because I saw that in myself and the message that I took away from that was there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm broken in some way. Um, there's something in me that got messed up. Like I have some sort of weird birth defect essentially that's made it so that I can't just love one person at once or that like when I fall in love with someone, I also want to check out other people or whatever. Like, like there's something wrong with me and um, maybe I'm just not built like to be loved or, or to love anybody. And so when I think back about it now, like it's really, really sad because that started from the age of like 13, 14, 15 for me of thinking like, I am bad, I'm wrong. Like this is not okay. Um, and, uh, and so because of that, basically from that age up until my early twenties, um, you know, I would maybe be in a relationship that I was quite happy in. But then if I started getting attracted to someone else or developing a crush on someone else, I would spiral into a a weird anxious depression because I was like, oh my God, why is this happening? Like, why can't I just focus on the person that I'm with? The person that I'm with makes me happy. I'm happy in this relationship. Like, why am I looking at someone else? Um, and uh, so either I would like kind of fall into a depressive spiral and then eventually snap out of it and kind of go about the rest of my life, or I would do what I think a lot of us are trained to do, which is to do serial monogamy, which is, you know, we're in a monogamous relationship for a number of years, number of years, number of years. Um, we find someone else, someone else catches our eye. We get a crush on someone else and then we end the old relationship in order to pursue the new one, especially if we perceive that next person to be a quote unquote upgrade or maybe a better match or something like that. Um, And a lot of people, that's just how they spend the entire rest of their lives is kind of hopping from long-term relationship to long-term relationship to long-term relationship, often with a relatively short amount of time in between. Um, Yeah. I mean, or cheating, right? Like cheating. exactly. That's, that's the other option is, is to cheat as well. Um, because a lot of people decide to do that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. and then eventually I hit a point when I was in my early twenties where it was happening again. Like I was in a relationship that, that was satisfying to me, that was fulfilling to me. And then like I was developing a crush on someone I was working with. And I finally reached a breaking point of, you know, like all my options seem shitty at this point. I don't want to just like fall into a depression again about how terrible I am for getting a crush on someone else. I don't want to break up with my boyfriend to start pursuing this new person. And I also don't want to cheat, you know, and, and all of those options seem like shitty options to me. And so, um, I was venting to my best friend about it. And he, he was the one who said, have you considered opening up your relationship? 
And, um, and I was actually a little bit offended at the, at the suggestion at the time, because my perception of open relationships was that they were, they were, you know, they were for people who were sex addicts or they were for people who couldn't commit, or they were for people who, um, you know, they definitely weren't for people who, who were, um, were in love with someone already, or who was interested in having a loving connection with someone. But, I still went home and started Googling about open relationships and that was how I came across the term polyamory. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was, you know, a huge awakening moment for me that just blew my mind that, um, you know, at that time, uh, there was a little bit of like a polyamory presence online. There were some communities, there were a couple books that had come out. Um, and it just blew my mind to see people doing this and, that everyone was happy and it was like a long-term solution and um, it was like valid and uh, satisfying. And there are people who had done it for like 20 years, you know, at the point that I was reading about. And it was just this huge moment of realizing like, Oh my God, this way that I felt my entire life, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. other people this too. And that was, gosh, that like, that was such a big turning point for me. I mean, yeah, there's so much shame in feeling like, like exactly what you shared that, oh, there's something wrong with me, right? Or like, what's wrong with me that I feel this way? I can relate to that. I mean, I could relate to that a lot in your book too, when you were sharing sort of your personal story. I feel like for me, and I'm obviously on sort of like the beginning end of starting to really think about this and, or at least think about it more consciously and look into it. It has felt a lot of the books that I have read and just like digging into this, it feels honestly like a huge sigh of relief or it feels like, Mm -hmm. I mean, saying it feels like coming home, like sounds kind of, I don't know, like maybe cliche, but like it's so empowering and comforting to read about other people that you can be like, Oh my God, me too. Okay. I'm not the only one. Right. Like there's, there's, and even if obviously everyone's, you know, I've read about a lot of different relationship styles. There's a lot that doesn't resonate with me, but Mm -hmm. sort of this core idea, like you said of, you know, Oh, if I'm in a relationship that I'm, cause it's one thing if you're in a relationship that sucks, right? Like that you're not happy, but if you're in a relationship where you are happy and like your needs are getting met and you start to develop whatever, whether it's romantic or sexual feelings, for someone else, we have just been taught culturally over and over that either there's something wrong with you or there's mm-hmm. something wrong with the relationship, right? Right. And right. so sort of like my pattern was always like, oh, I guess this isn't the right person. Like I was operating under the mm-hmm. belief of mm-hmm. if, as soon as you meet the right person, right? Like you mentioned the Disney movies, yes. as soon as you meet the right person, then like la la la, fairy tale, happily ever after, like you're never going to feel this way. And the thing that made me start to really dig into this with I guess like less shame and more objectivity was now being married to a partner who I really love, right? Like all the conditions that I thought would would lead to never feeling like this again, right? Mm, that it's like you're mm-hmm. told it's not the right person or you're not really in love or you um, like you're not having good communication. You're not having sex. Right. You're not having great sex. I'm like, well, I'm doing all those things and still I also have these feelings. So, okay, let's put the brakes on and like look at this, right? Mm, so mm-hmm. yeah, I hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And there's so much of that. Like there is so much of that that for some reason has just been downloaded into us culturally of blaming ourselves when we do feel that way. When it's like we're human beings, like we the reason that we're still on this planet is because we have sex, you know, is because we're attracted to other human beings. Like it's so understandable that from even like an evolutionary perspective that we would want to have sex with more people rather than less, which of course is not the case with everybody. And like, that's fine. But generally speaking, um, it's just so interesting that, that, yeah, that that is our default, that, 
you know, if I'm attracted to someone else, if I'm looking at someone else, if I'm connecting to someone else, that means there's something really wrong with the relationship that I have now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think that one of the most empowering things that we can do is like adopting that sort of belief of like, well, what if nothing's wrong with me? Right. And like, what if I can step out of the shame spiral and actually start to look at this in a different way? Like how would I approach this or any other topic? Right. I think this comes up a lot with diet culture, with other things. Like what if there's nothing wrong with me? Okay. What if I operated from that place? It like totally changes the perspective of what you're willing to be open to. Yes. It's so funny. You bring up the diet culture thing because when I listened to your episode with Melissa Toller, um, I felt like everything she was saying, I could take out diet culture and just put in like traditional monogamy, you know, like I kind of like, to be honest, I kind of feel like Melissa Toller stole my thunder a little bit because there's a lot of the same principles. And you, um, you also said something really fantastic in that episode of talking about like, once you start to try to break out of a mold of something really traditional, that's the time that you realize how deep tradition has its claws in you and how difficult it can be to kind of purge that and get rid of that. And it's very much the same thing with the messages we've been taught about relationships and what makes a good relationship, what makes a bad relationship, what makes a real relationship, what is not a real relationship, that it's only once you do start to question that and start to practice something different that you realize how much you've been conditioned and brainwashed to think these certain things. And it's Mm -hmm. not an easy process. I mean, I think that Um, If it was an easy process, I wouldn't have a job as a coach for coaching people through this process of helping them to kind of get rid of what they've been taught by their parents, by the church, by media, by magazines, um, what they've been taught that they should want for their relationships and kind of helping people to embrace what it is that they actually want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's such a process. So it's like once you open that door, it's like, okay, there's a lot of work to do. Um, so dipping back into your personal story a little bit. So your friend suggested, you know, Hey, maybe opening up your relationship, you did the Googles, right? Like found, came across that term. Then what happened? Uh, gosh, then I think like you, I did a deep dive and just like read as many books as I possibly could read as many blog posts as I possibly could. I mean, even digging deep enough that I was reading people's like live journal posts, (laughs) you know, from five years prior, um, and just read and read and read and read and read and had my mind just totally blown. And, you know, but then the problem was like, oh, now I need to talk to my boyfriend about this. Like once I realized, like, I think I want to try this, then it's like, well, I kind of got to bring him into this now. Um, and uh, gosh, I mean, I basically did all but put together a, a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> to try to pitch it to him. Um and, uh, you know, I was, I was young, he was young, we were both really bad at communication, like our conversation was like, after I'd kind of explained my whole stance and the whole topic. And after that, our conversation was basically like, oh, so, so do you want to try this? And it was like, okay, yeah, sure. And then like, didn't talk about boundaries, didn't talk about the different things that we wanted, didn't talk about our expectations, you know, it was just kind of like, we're just going to kind of head blindly into this and then bump into absolutely everything along the way. Um, So that was a really interesting experience because like a lot of people, my first foray into it was really painful and really uncomfortable and filled with mistakes. That's definitely not how it goes for everybody, but it's definitely a very common experience Um, because, you know, stepping outside the box is often really uncomfortable and painful at first um, because the box is usually much more comfortable. Um, But 
the still the important takeaway was even when I was dealing with mistakes and like having my heart broken and breaking other people's hearts um, and just generally fucking it up, that even in the moments that it was painful, I still felt like this is still the right choice for me. I just need to figure out a way to do it the right way for me. Um, mm -hmm. You know, because I think a lot of people try non-monogamy or polyamory and sometimes the first stumbling block, the first obstacle, the first time they feel uncomfortable, the, the impulse is like, oh gosh, no, 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 no. Like, let's get out of the pool and never go back in the pool again because it's too cold, you know. Um, and that's fine. Like for some people, that is the right choice. You know, they kind of explore and they realize maybe it's not right for them and then they pull back. Um, but for me, it was less of a recoil and more of a like, okay, I just need to get used to this. I need to get better at this. I need to figure out what are the skills I need? What kind of person do I need to be? What kind of person people do I need to be seeking out in order for this to actually work? And I think that that was probably the, you know, kind of the secondary origin of me becoming a total geek about this because then it became about researching communication, researching different relationship styles other than just polyamory, you know, different non-traditional relationship styles about, you know, dating a variety of people and getting exposed to a variety of opinions on this. Um, and just became like this years long fine tuning and tweaking process of what, you know, what is the best way to get this to function for me? And what have you, I mean, not that you ever arrive at like a finish line, but I'd love for you to sort of compare everything that you just shared about your like kind of first poly relationships and maybe how it looks for you now. Yeah. Um, when I started out, I think, um, you know, obviously at the time I, I was in a monogamous relationship and we decided to open up our relationship and I approached it in the way that I think I see a lot of people approaching it, which is kind of this mindset of like, okay, well, this will be just like monogamy, but uh, with some bonuses, you know? So we'll just keep our relationship the same way that it is. We'll just kind of get to tack on some benefits. Um, and so thinking that way meant that I just kind of assumed like, well, the most natural way to do this is to tell everyone like, hey, everyone, like my boyfriend is my primary partner. He comes first before anybody else. Don't try to get between us, but like you can kind of get what I have left over. Um, and just kind of assumed like, oh, that's just the most natural, um, understandable way to do it. And that must be the way everybody does it because that, that makes sense. Um, and it took a number of years of playing with that particular type of model, like specifically the primary, secondary, like hierarchical model in relationships. Um, it took a lot of time before I realized that, at least for me, that's not the best way to do it for a, for a couple of reasons. One of them being that like I had definitely a number of painful experiences where I realized that setting up my relationships with a really obvious and extreme um, uh, power imbalance um, was not great. Um, you know, kind of setting up my relationships in such a way that like, well, my primary partner can call the shots and if he says that he doesn't want me to date you, then I can't date you. Um, and vice versa, or like as in, and then I can also, you know, dictate to him, like, no, I don't want you to go date that woman. And so then he, he can't, um, that having that particular power dynamic, I found really ultimately didn't jive with me and my ethics and, and how I wanted to have my relationships. Um, because 
you know, I started thinking about it that like, if I came to somebody, if I started dating somebody new and essentially if my pitch to them was like, okay, um, so we will never live together. I'll probably never bring you home to meet my family. Um, I'll probably have to cancel on you if my primary partner tells me like has an emergency or tells me that like, you know, doesn't want me to, to go on a date with you on a particular night. Um, we probably can't be seen in public together. I can probably never take pictures of you and post it to social media with us together. Um, but hey, let's fall in love. Um, <laughs> yeah. that, like, like, oh, that's really not a good pitch. Um, like really not a great pitch. Um, like if I'm the kind of person who wants to have like multiple romantic, like loving relationships. So part of it was that. And then the other part, kind of the other side of the coin that I want to explore is that for a long time, I thought the primary secondary model would work for me because it felt really good to be in the primary slot, you know? Interesting. Um, yeah. It's like a nice ego thing to be like, I'm this yeah. person's primary. Yeah. And it will also, that's a lot of that is left over from like oh, what gosh. we're told about, you know, yes. like monogamous relationships that, yeah, this idea actually, yeah, this is a good thing to, to dig into. Cause I think there's, there's such a, there's so much messaging around like being chosen, being special, right? Like it's, and I think this comes up a lot in like hetero relationships, right? Like, oh, this man picked me. So therefore like I'm more worthy or whatever. It's like sort of the thing that women never get more likes on anything on social media than like when they get engaged, right? Or like maybe having a baby, but that it's like, it means something. You're special. This person picks you, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So uh, gosh, definitely uh, like a hangover from monogamy. Um, and for, for like many years, I kind of thought like, wow, polyamory really works really well for me, but only when I'm a primary partner, <laughs> essentially, you know, that, uh, you know, kind of feeling like, oh my goodness, I almost never get jealous as long as my partner's other partners are definitely inferior to me. <laughs> you know, like that was for a long time, my strategy for dealing with jealousy is kind of like, just make sure you're number one and then you're fine. Um, mm. and, uh, it, uh, I didn't break out of that for a number of years until the first time I was in a relationship with someone who like, I started up this new relationship after a period of being single. Um, and, uh, he also happened to kind of started another relationship at the same time. And kind of the way things progressed is that I won't say that our relationships were parallel, but they were kind of progressing in kind of the same direction of like becoming really intimate and, um, emotional and romantic. Like it wasn't the case that I could swoop in, be with someone for a couple of years, have the seniority or the tenure as it were, <laughs> um, which means that like anyone new can't replace me. Um, and it was so challenging for me at the time to try to let go of like wanting to be number one. And ultimately, like initially at that time, like I failed at it. Like I, I just like, I couldn't do it. Like, and so I, gosh, like I worked in overdrive in that particular relationship to try to become number one, you know, and that meant things like essentially kind of like not having any boundaries with my partner, like, you know, almost never disagreeing with him, bending over backwards to make sure that I was always available whenever he wanted me to be available. Um, uh, you know, just like really, really trying to work my way to the top and kind of earn that promotion <laughs> of being the primary partner. And then, you know, finally, I think maybe like a year and a half into our relationship, we finally had a conversation where he did tell me that that's the way he felt about me. He felt me like he felt about me like that I was his primary partner and like more important than anybody else. And, 
you know, for about a week, I was, you know, doing a touchdown dance and like congratulating myself for like finally making it to number one and kind of thinking like, okay, finally, like now I can feel secure. Now I don't need to feel jealous. Like now I have the stability and security that I'm number one and no one can threaten me. But then the problem was that now that I was at the top, I essentially had to like be king of the hill and make sure no one replaced me, you know, like it didn't actually give me any security. It was like, now this person has chosen me. And now just like my old monogamous days, now I need to be really jealous and suspicious of anyone trying to come in and and replace me. And so that was such an important takeaway for me. And something that I also try to impart to people that work with me is that, it feels like on the outside that like, oh, if this person just tells me that I'm the most important person ever, that then I can relax and feel safe and secure and I'll never have to worry about anything. But I found for me that actually backfired in that, you know, this person granted this title on me, which means this person also has the power to take it away. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it became a weird thing of it actually being disempowering to be in that position. Um, And since then, I mean, like since then, you know, I learned my lessons there. And so now for the past number of years, like what I've practiced is a much more egalitarian version of polyamory where, you know, like I don't have one of my partners that automatically is more important than the other. You know, I kind of try my best to be compassionate and understanding and give everyone some priority and attention just in the same way that if you had two kids, you would do your best to develop um, important relationships with both of them and make sure that both of their needs are met. Um, but, uh, but that's also not to say that that means that I totally threw out the idea of having like an intense, serious, committed relationship. You know, mm-hmm. I have intense, serious, committed relationships. It's just that there, I truly try to be very conscious and avoid this intense power imbalance that I think come can come from really strict hierarchy. Yeah. I think that's interesting. It brings, as you were talking, it sort of brings up the question for me of, you know, who are we if our self-worth isn't dependent on someone else, like choosing Mm. us as a primary partner, right? Like I think there is, I said ego before, but I think there is a lot in there of, you know, if we're basing our self-worth on that, not to say the relationships aren't great. And of course it feels great to be in a, you know, a functional, like healthy relationship with someone that you love, but that, okay, what if this isn't the like be all end all, right? I think that's sort of an interesting thing to explore. And I also think as I've started to research this myself and have conversations, you know, like I said, it's the only thing I want to talk about. My poor friends are like, we get it. Um, (laughs) But even have those conversations and, you know, the people who have resonated with it versus the people who have been like, oh, I could never do that because like I would be too jealous or I would be too busy, like too worried that my partner's going to leave me. And it sort of made me stop and think like so much of security in a lot of ways, but especially in relationships, it's false security. Cause like, just because people get divorced all the time, like people, like just because I'm married doesn't mean, okay, this, this person can never leave me. So I'm good. Like it's, it's almost like we want to pull the wool over our own eyes and like pretend that we have some kind of security that we really don't have. Like I would rather my partners, like my partner be with me by knowing it's like by choice than like, because I've got some like locked down primary status. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so I I think it's really interesting because I think through that particular experience in my life, you know, I learned that I was chasing this title instead of chasing what I needed, mm, um, you know, which, yeah. which was, you know, it's kind of like I had to deconstruct like, okay, what do I need? Like, okay, I need like a sense of stability and security. What does that actually mean? Like, oh, that actually means like, 
I just want to know that my partner's gonna keep me in consideration when scheduling things. Or I just want to know that like my partner's gonna communicate with me about what's going on in his life. Or I just, I want maybe more verbal reassurance and affection from my partner. You know, like at that time I didn't actually deconstruct what is, what are the actual things that I need for my partner in this, in this situation to feel more safe and more loved. It was more, my thinking was like, if I get this title, then I'll feel good. And all those other things will automatically follow suit. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, I I got the title without actually asking for the things that I needed and then still felt sad and scared and disappointed when I didn't get those things. So that's what I often, um, you know, when clients come to me, you know, especially clients who are very much in my same position of being like, I feel scared and I feel insecure and like, I really want to be primary. Um, that's what I encourage people to kind of do more of that deep, deconstruction of like, no, what really though, what is it that you actually want from your partner separate from a title and go after that? Like, don't chase a title, go after the actual substance. Yeah, no, I want to underscore that because I think, I mean, obviously that relates to the topic that we're discussing, but I think it's true in every facet of life. There's always this sort of low hanging fruit that you can grab. That's like, oh, this is, this is the thing that I want when actually that thing means nothing. If like what your actual needs aren't getting met, right. That it's like easy to say, oh, you know, as soon as I'm engaged, everything's going to be fine or, you know, whatever, as soon as I'm primary or whatever, it's, it's like the, I'll be happy when, right. That comes in, you know, with, with everything, with body stuff, with money stuff, you know, and then you realize, okay, I, I got to this place where I'm earning the amount of money that I said was going to make me feel worthy and successful. And then I still don't feel this way because, oh wait, it wasn't actually about the money or, you know, that it's always worth asking, you know, those questions of like what you just said, what does security look like for you? And if you can actually articulate that and then get those needs met, I don't know. I think that that's a lot more valuable than just having an empty label that probably doesn't make you feel great anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hit the nail on the head there. So with that in mind, something that I wanted to ask you about, because you just mentioned sort of getting away from the hierarchy structure and being more egalitarian in your relationships. I'm curious if you can go into the specifics of like the logistical side of having multiple partners, like managing multiple relationships and multiple partners needs for emotional support, time, attention. Cause I think it's easy to be like, Oh, kumbaya, like, you know, (laughs) no one's primary, but can you give some really specific examples of what it looks like in your current life and relationships to actually practice that? Sure. Gosh. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's funny because it's like, I kind of have to like, I've been doing this long enough now that some of it has started to become a little bit second nature, um, which is good for me. But then as far as talking about it, um, sometimes it's, it's again, a little bit hard to see. Um, I mean, but for instance, okay. So for instance, so I travel a ton, you know, I spend often part of the year traveling alone. I spend part of the year traveling with my partner, Jace. I spend part of the year, um, you know, spending time with my partner, Alex, who lives in Singapore right now. Um, And for instance, it's things like when I'm spending time with Jace, um, that like, obviously, I still need to be able to have FaceTime with Alex. And so it could be something like, you know, making sure that I still have like a Skype date, like once a week or something with Alex. And, and of course, like, you know, negotiating that with Jace, you know, giving the Jace a heads up, like, oh, hey, I think on Friday, I'm going to go, you know, have a Skype date with Alex. And he's usually like, okay, yeah, sure. You know, whatever. Um, Or like me needing to take trips away to spend time with people. Um, I think, and I mean, the thing is like my life right now, because I'm on the go all the time, it means that obviously I'm spending 
you know, sometimes chunks of time away from certain partners or away from both of my partners at a fair clip. Um, it was definitely different, like during the years that I was living in LA and like all of my partners were local. And then it was just, you know, then it just boils down to using Google Calendar really effectively, yeah. <laughs> honestly, yeah. you know, and it definitely, it takes a lot of like open and honest and sometimes uncomfortable conversations with people about what their needs are, what their expectations are in relation to time. Um, some people will expect and need a lot of time in relationships. Some people don't, you know, especially if you're dating someone who already has other partners, often, you know, they don't have that much time to give. Um, and sometimes that changes for people as well, how much time they want to give or receive from, relation, from a relationship. Um, it does mean that uh, I think a lot of us polyamorous folk spend a lot of time texting <laughs> um, because of the fact that you can't astral project and be with multiple partners at the same time. Um, so I think that, you know, modern technology has enabled a lot of people to be able to maintain relationships and still do, you know, still communicate and kind of have relationship maintenance be accessible even when you're not with your partner at that exact time. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, so for my life specifically right now, it looks like a lot of kind of like managing my travel schedule and managing like when I'm going to spend time with who and, you know, when people are available to spend time with me because like my partners also, you know, are going on dates or have other other partners as well. Um, but it's, I don't know, like I said, like it's been enough time now that it's like I'm just very used to it, you know. It, it is definitely a juggle, but, but you do get used to it to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about who you think, I know this is a big question, but like who you think like polyamory or non-monogamy is a good fit for Like, is there anything in your mind where you're like, if X, Y, and Z, like this might be something that would be a good fit? Hmm. I think, um, I mean, of course, you know, what we've already covered, like the ground that we've already covered a little bit here, you know, if you found yourself frequently frustrated by traditional monogamy, um, if you found yourself in a situation where, you end up often in relationships where you love the person, but like maybe you start to get like a little bit itchy or a little bit restless or you start, you know, developing crosses on other people easily. Like, I think that's a good fit. I think that if you're really good at emotional management and at self-soothing, um, because I think that's a big thing is that like often when we are in monogamous relationships, it, like you said, it can kind of help us to buy into this illusion of security. And when we're not in a monogamous relationship, you know, when a partner is going out on dates or developing relationships with someone else, I think that forces us to more intensely confront the fact that like maybe we don't actually have a bunch of security in our relationships, but that doesn't mean that like our partners are all going to abandon us or that we're going to get hurt. And I think it's, um, you know, if you're someone who's good at being able to, you know, be very self-aware of your own thought processes of being able to self-soothe of manage your emotions of being able to, to, I guess, you know, I, I think understand that your self-worth is not linked to what it is that your partner is or is not doing in regards to you. I think that this is probably a good fit. Um, and I think if you get some kind of satisfaction or joy about 
talking about relationship dynamics, um, that's definitely helpful because you spend a lot of time talking about these things. <laughs> um, yeah. A lot of time. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I've been thinking too, because uh, just like thinking through that question of like, huh, like who would this be like a good fit for? Or just like, what are some of the potential qualities that like something I've been thinking about is like, I have a hard time. Um, I don't want to say like, I have a hard time following rules, but like maybe a little mm-hmm. bit that like, I, I feel like I'm such a curious person. I mean, obviously I host a podcast, right? I'm like literally professionally mm-hmm. curious that mm-hmm. like there's something that's really appealing or of interest to me. And this has come up sort of in conversations with friends too, around this topic of the what if every person that you meet or every relationship like could take its natural course as oh, opposed gosh. to does that make sense like yes as yes. opposed to okay well i'm in this romantic partnership and we tend to put you know our romantic partnerships like on a pedestal above everything else so that means that like my friendships are downgraded okay my friendships with men have to look like this my friendships with women have mm-hmm. to look like this i'm attracted to this person but this like it's it almost feels like so much work to sort of not just let like everything be right. what it is and like i've been thinking about yes. that more like how how traditional monogamy doesn't let us explore like what any given connection with any given person could be. Yes, no, 100%. And that was something that I, that I, I wanted to mention as well, that this is something that I've been thinking about writing about recently. Um, it's going to sound really intense at first, but I promise it's related. Um, but I've been thinking about writing something about, uh, for me, polyamory, being a means of coping with my own death. That sounds really intense and serious. But what I mean by that is that I think that as I analyze myself and realize like I'm a person who hates to say no to new experiences. Um, And I've always been a person who just like kind of wants the world. Like I want to try everything. I want to say yes to a lot of people and a lot of experiences and and a lot of places. And so, of course, I just start to think, well, why is that? Why is that? And I think part of that is just kind of wanting to live more and take advantage of life more uh, before I die, whenever that's going to be. And I realize that to a certain extent, like, there's a seed of that in there of like, I love being able to know that whoever comes into my life, I can kind of say yes to and be like, yeah, let's explore this. And like, maybe it's not great for us. And then we kind of go our separate ways and that's fine. Or maybe we find it is an amazing, fantastic connection. Um, and it's, I mean, the thing is this, like, obviously in life, you can't, you're not physically able to say yes to everything, you know, like I think the debate a lot of people have is the fact that like, you can't necessarily say yes to having the joy of like getting married and having kids and also say yes to the joy of just like being a nomad and traveling everywhere all the time. You know, I mean, some people pull that off, but not everybody does. And so of course in life, you're always making choices and decisions and there's always the path that you didn't take. But I do think for me, part of this is that of like, I get to explore many paths at once as far as relationships go. I think for me, it's also part of why I end up traveling so much is because I'm like, I want to know what it's like to live in Istanbul, but I don't want to live in Istanbul permanently, but I want to know what it's like. I want to know what it's like to live in, in Laos. Um, and so I think for me, you know, I have that thing with travel of like, I want to know what it's like to live here and to live here and to live here. Um, and I think it's the same for me with relationships is I just, I want to know what it's like to connect with this person and this person and that person and this person from a very different background from me and this person who has a similar background from me, you know, as opposed to like picking one place to live or picking one person to be with and then always wondering 
you know, oh, how different my life could have been if I'd explored with this person or how different my life could have been if I'd lived in this place. I, I think there's definitely, there's something about that for me, kind of this idea of like wanting to experience as much as possible yeah, I mean, life. that makes com- that makes complete sense. And obviously, you can't see me like nodding furiously. But I, I definitely <laughs> agree with that. I also think, like part of this for me, again, like I'm trying to sort of be objective and ask questions and just kind of be like, huh, and curious, sort of looking at the arbitrary nature of like, the again, I said, like putting romantic, pe- like relationships on a pedestal, but with sex, that it seems so arbitrary to me now that I'm thinking about it, that, you know, if let's say you do have a traditionally monogamous relationship, right. And you have that type of partnership that that partnership isn't expected to meet all of your needs in other areas. Like it's fine to have really close, deep emotional friendships. It's Mm -hmm. fine to have other people that you go to for career mentorship. Like it's fine for all, but not with sex. Like that's the, why is sexual exclusivity, like the mark of fidelity or committed relationship. And for some people, maybe it actually is, but for me, sort of, I'm trying to like, step back and like question the things that I've been told, not necessarily sure where that's going to lead, but even that, that I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Mm -hmm, I don't know. mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that does change for people too. I mean, definitely I've certainly encountered some people where sex, like if their partner has sex with anyone else, like they, they, you know, couldn't, couldn't give a damn. I mean, as in not that they don't care, but as in like, it doesn't bother them. It doesn't rile them up. It doesn't make them jealous. But if their partner gets emotionally intimate with someone else on top of that, that that's when they start to feel kind of scared and insecure. Like I've definitely seen kind of the reverse of that as well. Like where people try to make rules of like sex is fine, but you like love is not. Oh gosh. That's yeah. That I've seen that one so many times that it's, it's, yeah, it's it's almost like a joke to me at this point how many times I've seen that one because honestly anytime someone tries to actually verbalize that and make it a rule, it never works out. <laughs> you know, um anytime you tell someone you cannot love someone else, it's, you know, whether it's human nature to try to break rules or whatever it is, like it just it it, you know, human emotions and love in particular does not uh, follow rules very well. Definitely. This, this reminds me, um, our Patreon community, um, there's a particular funding level where we have Google Hangouts, um, like every so often. And in the most recent set of Google Hangouts, there was this awesome conversation that one of the members of the community, Lexi, shout out to Lexi, um, brought up, sort of just posed this question of what's the difference between like a romantic relationship and a friendship? And it's sort of like, it was a really interesting conversation that followed of like, we don't often ask that question. Like, is the, is it the absence of sex? Is it something else? Is it a different mm-hmm. type of love? Cause I think about like the deep, deep love that I have for my like really close female friend, right? Like what is the line? And the fact that we couldn't come up with a really clear definition or you know, it was a really interesting mm-hmm. conversation, but like even that was interesting. Like, Oh wait, hang on. Like this is more like the, the lines aren't as clear. I think as maybe we would like them to be. Yes. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean that, that's a huge question in and of itself of like what, what actually is romance? Because we can't say it's just sex um, because that's just, you know, the distinguishment there is just like the people that you have sex with and the people that you don't have sex with. But we know that it's more than that. It's not just that. Um, I questioned this a lot. Uh, I think last year we had Carrie Jenkins on the podcast. She wrote this book, what love is and what it could be. And she's a philosopher and she also happens to identify as polyamorous. Um, And her book is definitely not about polyamory. It is about love and romance and how we perceive those things and how 
uh, our cultural definition of those things have changed wildly over the years and what that means for us now. Um, but yeah, like it's, I think that you're right that that separation is not as clear as we would like it to be. The best, I will say in talking about this to many friends, the best answer I ever got in regards to that question uh, was that our romantic relationships tend to be more intentional than our friendships. Um, not all the time, but some of the times. Like, like, for instance, the idea that, you know, you go on a dating app with the intention of finding someone to date. You agree to a first date kind of with the intention of we're two people exploring each other and we're going to see if we fit well together and if we like each other. And then you enter into a relationship with the intention of we're going to get closer, like we're going to have sex, maybe we'll move in together, or maybe we'll get married, or maybe we'll have kids, or whatever intention it is that you're holding when you start that romantic relationship, versus most friendships that tend to develop a little bit more organically, I would say, like maybe you happen to be co-workers, or maybe you've been friends since you were in preschool together, or whatever, but that there's less of intention there. And now, the thing that really excites me is figuring out how can I bring more of that organic friendship feeling to my romantic relationships and let things develop more organically? And how can I bring that intention and energy to my friendships and give my friendships just as much like energy and dedication and effort as I put into my romantic relationships? Like that's the stuff that really excites me is kind of trying to figure out how do I balance the scales here a little bit just to kind of have like really good relationships all around regardless of if they're romantic or sexual or not. Yeah, I think that's so incredibly well said. I can relate a lot to what you were saying about bringing that sort of intention to your friendships. That's something that I've been really working on the last like year or so, especially the last couple of months of, you know, all of this effort that we put into, you know, creating a great date for a romantic partner mm. or, you know, texting them to check in. Like I really have switched a lot of that energy into my friendships. And obviously as a result, I have much stronger friendships. Surprise, surprise, mm, like it works. Mm -hmm. But like I was yeah, thinking about that, even the last, you know, couple of weeks, like uh, certain activities, you know, a friend and I went on like a six mile hike in the snow to this beautiful place and like took fun, like selfies and then went and spent the afternoon in a hot tub. And we were joking about mm. how like that, that would be a great romantic date. Right. And it's a completely platonic relationship. And those are the types of things that we don't always block off six hours right. to do this fun new thing where you're not also, you know, texting your partner or doing other things like that. Right. It was just exclusively time to spend with her. And that like things like that have started to make me think, no, it's, I want, if I want really deep, rich relationships across, you know, sort of like all different types, then that requires the same type of, as you so well said, intentionality that you would put into finding someone to date. Right, right. And then on the other side of that is, you know, kind of bringing that more sense of like being organic to a romantic relationship is bringing that sense of like the same way that when you meet someone who's maybe going to be a friend that you don't stress out about, is this the right friend for me? Is it going to go okay? Are they going to be there 10 years from now? Um, is this the person I want to spend time with? Like, no, we kind of just tend to let friendships develop as they're going to develop and kind of trying to bring a little bit of a sense to that, especially to new romantic or sexual relationships of not putting so much pressure mm -hmm. on, I need to like poke and prod and plan and manipulate and try to make sure that this thing is going to turn into the thing that I want it to be. And being able to take a little bit more of a step back and be like, this is okay. Like this is going to find its organic level and we're going to figure it out and it's going to be okay. Yeah. But I mean, I think so much of that comes down to, I mean, not that you're pushing polyamory, but like that, that is only really possible in a context where you're not just limited to 
one. Like that can happen with friendships because you you can have more than one friend, right? Mm-hmm, so it's like mm-hmm. that, and you can have the friend who this is someone who we have this one really specific thing in common, and that's you know nothing else really. So you know mm-hmm. once a month we do that thing, and like that relation, like friendships. One of the beautiful things I find about friendships is that they can exist in lots of different levels of intensity, right? Like I have the friends that I text every single day, right, and we're all up in each other's stuff all the time, and then I have friends that I don't speak to for three months, and then when we see each other, it's a great time, right? Or I have a friend mm-hmm. that you know we we read the same kind of books. So it's like you're able to, like we were saying before, have relationships that just sort of occupy their natural space as opposed Mm -hmm. to, you know, if you were to say, okay, you're only allowed to eat one food for the rest of your life, what foods are going to be? It's a totally different, yeah. Right. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Very well said. So I guess with that in mind, can you give some specific, I don't know, examples might not be the right word, but I'd love to hear you talk about what you feel like for you, some of the specific benefits are that you experience from practicing polyamory. Gosh, yeah. Um, I mean, for me right now, the shape of my life means that I do get chunks of time away from certain partners, you know, whether I'm spending time with another partner or if I'm, you know, traveling by myself or something like that, which is obviously the way that not everybody does it, but that's how I'm doing it these days. Um, And actually having that time away from people, I mean, it's hard. It's sad. Like I hate having to say goodbye to a partner and I miss them so terribly much. And, And, but at the same time, I get to experience like this excitement of being back with a partner, um, after being away and it's always kind of like a nice refresh. It's like a nice reset. It's like a nice reminder to me of like, Oh gosh. Yeah. Like I love this person so much. And these are the things that excited me about this person when I first met them. And they still are exciting to me now, along with all these other new things. And I think especially in long-term relationships, it can be so important to do that. Um, even if you're not doing, you know, the nutso things that I'm doing, which is like traveling all the time and like being away from partners for long periods of time. Um, but I think, I think a lot of people enjoy that in having multiple partners in that it kind of enables you to have a little bit of a sense of autonomy and independence because, you know, your identity is not just sucked into it's me and my partner and we're the power couple and it's just us. (laughs) Um, you know, you're making your own decisions. You're, you're exploring parts of you, uh, that come out with different partners, different interests, different parts of your personality that you get to explore with different partners. Um, and I think, you know, I think there is something to not spending 24 hours of your day with the same person Mm -hmm. for 50 years. Like, and that's, that's even if you choose to be monogamous, like, I think there's something to that. And I mean, I think a lot of relationship experts would agree that, having that time apart, having independent lives to a certain extent, having autonomy, having a sense of self and identity that's separate from your partner, again, even if you're choosing monogamy, can really help to extend the health of your relationship and the quality of your relationship, I think, more so than doing what we've been taught, which is kind of like once you found your one person, that's the most important person and they should be taking up most of your time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can relate to that so much with my husband and I have found that since I started long distance hiking, like obviously it's hard to be apart for sure. And, you know, we definitely miss each other. And each time that I leave, you know, we've like, okay, how can we tweak this so that it's, you know, a little better than mm-hmm. last time, a little better than mm-hmm. last time. But I found I was gone for six weeks last year when I hiked the Arizona trail and our relationship when I came back, I mean, our relationship was great before, but it was, there was 
so much less taking each other for granted. And obviously this stuff sounds cliche because it is, but it actually really works. And I have found this year knowing that I'm leaving, you know, for potentially four months, having that date on the calendar Mm -hmm. has made me a lot more present while I'm here of, okay, how can we spend a lot of time together? Because I know that I'm going to be leaving as opposed to just this like sort of open abyss of, well, they're always going to be around. So like, it doesn't really matter. And it's, it's been, while it's hard to be apart, it's been incredible for our relationship. Yes. Yes. And, and I mean, even with people that I work with who maybe don't do things like that, you know, don't go off on like long adventures away from their partners for, for long periods of time. A lot of people that I work with find that they have all, they find all kinds of surprising parts of themselves, different parts of their personalities, you know, that come out different interests that they discover. Um, a lot of people find that it kicks their sex drive into gear in a way that they were not anticipating at all. I mean, and this is for, you know, like if you do have sex or do have a sex drive, which not everybody has. Um, but I definitely found that in my own life. Um, when I was young and like first exploring this, I think in every monogamous relationship I'd had up to that point, somehow I had gotten the message either from a partner or I had amplified to myself that I have a low sex drive. And I think it was a number of things. I think it was kind of like, you know, I had the typical fade in libido that I think a lot of people experience after one, two, three years in a relationship where the person's no longer, you know, where you no longer have that chemical cocktail going in your brain that's compelling you to keep having sex with this person all the time. And, and, uh, you know, just the quality of, of that part of the relationship changes. Um, and I think because I experienced that, I just always assumed like I must have a low sex drive. Um, and that's just who I am. And that's just unfortunately kind of a shitty thing that like my partners have to deal with. Um, and then as soon as I started exploring non-monogamy, I found like, oh my goodness, no, I have like a perfectly normal sex drive. Like I have a probably medium to almost high sex drive. Like I am this sexual being. Um, And so that's like, that's always something that catches people by surprise. And often people, you know, especially a couple who's first opening up their relationship. I've seen so many couples where their bedroom is practically dead to use a cliche term, or maybe they're not having sex anymore. And then as soon as they start having sex with other people, their own sex life just explodes. Um, And it's not to say that, like, I think that you know, having sex with other people is the be all end all solution for like, if you know, you and your partner are not having like a great sex life, but it definitely, I see it have an effect so often and it it always like catches people by surprise. Well, I think it catches people by surprise because it's sort of counterintuitive to what we're told that, you know, if, okay, let's say you're used to only having one partner and then you just assume, well, if you're going to have two partners or three partners that, and if you're having sex with all those, with those other partners too, that there's going to be nothing left over or that you're not going to want. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I I mean, I found that, I'm trying to remember what the name of the book was. I think it's called The Erotic Mind, maybe, another book that I read this year. It's basically just all about, you know, eroticism. And there were a Mm -hmm. lot of case studies in there of, you know, tons of different couples, tons of different relationships that spoke to exactly the same thing, that it's like you become a more sexual, sensual person through exploring that. And then that just becomes like a larger part of your life. And then that translates into more. And I found that even in terms of, I'm a big fan of erotica. I talk about that on the podcast a lot. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of erotica periods of time where I'm doing that. I'm having more sex because it's more on my Mm. mind or I'm more like primed for it or, you know, so that, I mean, that totally makes sense to me. Um, actually that brings up an interesting question. So when you said that um, that's counterintuitive, I'm curious if you have an example of maybe another 
belief about yourself or about relationships that you have had to unlearn. And I guess I'll give an example of something that I've been thinking about. Because I think when non-monogamy comes up as a topic, one of the first things that people want to ask or talk about is jealousy, right? I think that's pretty Mm -hmm. common. And Mm -hmm. I have had this realization recently that the cultural messaging that I have received about jealousy is actually really problematic in that, Mm -hmm. like I have been sort of taught, and I think a lot of us have, that jealousy is a sign that somebody loves you a lot, right? That it's like, well, I'm only acting this crazy because I love you so much that I like can't stand the thought of you as someone else or this like really sort of aggressive, especially like aggressive male jealousy, right? Like Mm -hmm. I punched this person because he like looked at you the wrong way or sort of thinking Mm -hmm. of so that's like a belief that regardless of what happens you know with the type of relationship that my husband and I choose to have that like actually I don't love that like I don't want it to be and he's not like that he's not really a super jealous person and at Mm -hmm. first that bothered me because I thought oh well what like I'm not sexy enough you don't like want to fight for me you know so I'm curious a if you have any thoughts on that and then b if there's a particular belief that you've had to unlearn Gosh, I mean, I definitely had to unlearn that one for sure. I mean, in my very first non-monogamous relationship, um, you know, like when I first started dating and if there was ever an instance where my boyfriend at the time didn't seem to be jealous, oh gosh, it definitely brought up all kinds of question marks in my mind of like, am I not worth it? Do you not give a shit? <laughs> like, do you not care if I stay or if I go? You know, which again, like we explored earlier is, you know, underneath that is not, I want you to be jealous and controlling. Underneath that is just, I want you to tell me that you care about me, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it's true. We we do we definitely do get that message that like if someone's jealous, it's because they love you and that jealousy equals love. Um and I mean that one it didn't take that long for me to unlearn that because like once you do start exploring polyamory or any kind of multi-partner dating, you learn very quickly that jealousy makes things a, a jealous response from a partner makes things a lot more painful more than it makes it feel good. Um, and so I definitely unlearned that one. Um, gosh, I, I don't know if this necessarily relates to like a message about myself or a belief about myself, but it was a belief that I held that changed a lot. Um, and, uh, for many years, I think like many of us who were raised in Western culture, I definitely had this internalized belief that sex that was not in the context of a a romantic or emotionally intense relationship is bad Mm -hmm. or is less important or less valid. Um, So as in casual sex, um, And I will say now, I'm still not really a person who seeks out a lot of casual sex myself. Um, More is just a matter of like preference, I guess, and and energy and time than anything else. But for a long time, I would definitely like so heavily judge people or partners who did have some kind of casual sex. Um, And uh, that's definitely like a big part of cultural programming. It's a big part of just like, all the sex negative messages that we receive. But the funny thing is that within the polyamorous community, there's a surprising amount of sex negativity. And I say surprising because you would think that for people who are open-minded and embracing doing something non-traditional, you would think that these would be the most sex positive people in the world. But often there's a lot of sex negativity and it's for a very specific reason. You know, it's because I think a lot of people who are polyamorous 
they're trying to put out the message of like, no, 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 it's not a weird sex thing. It's not a weird sex thing. Like we're maintaining multiple romantic, committed, intense, serious, meaningful relationships. We're not just like sex addicts. We're not sex fiends. We're not like those weird people over in that corner who have casual sex all the time, <laughs> you know? Um, and that's a like, I get it. Like that's a product. I think we saw some of that with the gay rights movement as well um, of the fact that, you know, anyone who is on a, a serious gay rights platform you wouldn't often hear them talking about something like bathhouse culture, for instance, um, or grinder culture, things like that, because unfortunately the state of how things are in the, in the United States right now, you know, I think that movements that want legitimacy have to separate themselves from quote unquote, bad, dirty yeah, sex. Yeah. 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 I mean, and yeah. that's, yeah. Anytime. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is a hard one, right? That it's like, how can you be comfortable and confident in your lifestyle choices without needing to put down other people's choices in order to make yours mm. seem okay, right? And I yes. think that that extends to so many different things. I think it's like a lot of problematic stuff in the wellness industry. There's just like a lot mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. of, because yeah, I would, I would say that, you know, a myth or misconception that people might have about polyamory, like you said, is, oh, it's just all about sex. It's people who can't commit. It's like all a bunch of orgies or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And like all the things that we put onto it. So I can see why the natural response would be to sort of be really defensive about that. Like, no, 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 it's yes. not just that. And so I think it's, it's important to clarify, right? Like what it is and what it isn't. But mm -hmm. if there's a way to do that without being, like you said, like being sex negative about it, that, that, yeah. 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 And it's, it's so hard to do that just again, because of the culture that we are in. Um, because like, yes, of course, you know, people do want to put out the message. Like, I mean, maybe for me personally, like if I say, for instance, you know, like, you know, right now I'm in two long-term committed relationships that honestly probably don't look that different from your monogamous relationship when you really boil things down. Um, and I'm not out on the weekend, you know, hooking up with someone every single weekend. I'm not going to orgies all the time. Um, but then the other half of that conversation is, but you know what, if I was hooking up with people every weekend and if I was going to orgies all the time, like that's okay too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like again, if I'm still being mindful and ethical in the way that I use my sexuality, like there's nothing wrong with that either. Like mm. if you explore polyamory and it is for you mostly a sex thing, that's also okay too. Again, as long as you're being healthy and mindful and ethical with it. Yeah. I love that. Oh my gosh. There's so much more that we could talk about, so but, much. um, I know, <laughs> but, um, before we start to wrap up, is there anything, you know, whether about overall the topic of polyamory or about sort of your work, your coaching work, anything that hasn't come up that you wanted to make sure to mention? Um, yeah, I think just something that I, I want to put out there. I think, um, Right now, actually, I'm working on on putting together some talks. Like in the month of April, I'm, I'm doing a lot of talks at conventions and at conferences. Um, and like I'm going on tour with my podcast. And so I'm putting together some talks about that. And something that's been on my mind a lot recently is how to, to talk about non-monogamy to people who are monogamous uh, without them feeling like someone's trying to convert them. Mm-hmm. With the purpose of just educating so that we can all be kind of more comfortable in the world, <laughs> um, which is a, which is kind of a, uh, like it's a, a little bit of a pie in the sky goal, but I've been doing a lot of writing recently on, I think in the same way that like now I think there's a lot of resources online 
For instance, helping to educate cisgender people on the proper way to talk to or ask questions of someone who is not cisgender, like someone who identifies as trans or as non-binary, you know, and kind of there's a lot of good guides for like, don't ask this question, don't use this language, ask these kind of questions, like do these kind of things, like small things to help make this person just feel more comfortable living and existing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, that, you know, that, uh, um, is relevant to so many more identities than just uh, gender. But that's kind of the topic that I've been starting to explore recently is, um, you know, how to educate everyone on the things that they can do to just kind of make this world a safer place for people with non-traditional relationships, you know? Um, You know, things like just like having awareness and like asking people questions about their relationship orientation, about you know, not asking people, is it a sex thing (laughs) about not, if someone opens up to you about their non-traditional relationship, not taking that as an invitation to start spilling about your own kinky sex secrets, because that happens all the time. (laughs) Um, You know, I don't know, that that's kind of what I've been exploring recently. No, I think, I think that's awesome. I also think that that touches on what you were saying before about, you know, the not having to make someone else's choices wrong in order to defend your choices. Because like I, even in the, like, (laughs) I guess recent months of doing this like deep dive have seen within like the poly community, sometimes it's sort of like a looking down on monogamy or like you're not as Mm. evolved because you practice this like traditional, you know, whatever. And like, what if it didn't have to be that, right? Like I love where you're coming from of sort of education and open communication that doesn't have judgment and that doesn't have an agenda and sort of, yeah, anytime that we can open up like, Hey, here's how other people do life. That's cool. Like in order for, like you said, making it safer for like marginalized folks for making alternative choices safer for allowing yourself to have more information to make your own choices. Right. That like that Mm -hmm. to me, I don't know. Like I, I just, I love that so much. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Even, even like, even just the something small of, you know, if a friend that you know is non-monogamous or exploring it or whatever, if a friend comes to you to talk about something difficult happening in their relationships or something difficult that came up with a partner, um, not going what I call the, the quote unquote voided warranty route and telling them like, well, it makes sense. Like if you're, you know, if you're trying to be non-monogamous, then it makes sense why you'd be having these kind of problems. Um, and that's, I, I don't know, like, like I come up against that so often. And that feels, it's like, that's just such a tiny, simple thing that people could change in order to make it just a better world. Kind of the same way that if like your friend who's trans comes to you and starts complaining about problems in their own life, maybe about discrimination or harassment that they're receiving that you wouldn't tell your friend, oh, well, that's what happens when you try to like break out of the gender binary, (laughs) you know, like it's, it's your own damn fault. Like things like that, like that's kind of been on my mind. It's like, I, I would like, like it as a culture, if we could start to, at least within quote unquote woke culture, if we could kind of start to treat relationships with like relate the relationship spectrum kind of with the same respect and mindfulness that we do with people of all kinds of other identities. Yeah. I love that. Well, I'll be excited to see what you wind up doing with that. Um, yeah, that's a good place. I think to start to wrap up the way that we end these episodes are with a series of just sort of like rapid fiery random questions. Basically each season, um, the members of the Patreon community, uh, have the chance to put forth questions that they would like to have asked to all eight guests of a season. So I have seven totally random questions for you. If you are down to answer seven random questions. 
totally down. Okay. What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast lately? Lately, anything with avocados in it. Yes. I'm such a oh God. I'm such a California kid, such a West <laughs> Coast kid. So like anywhere I am in the world, like I got to find some avocados. Yeah. I, yeah relatable. Relatable it's millennial so, problem. Gosh, yeah, I was going to say it sounds so millennial. Yeah. but um, What's the one thought that gives you the most butterflies right now? Like when you think about it, you get either like all excited and tingly or maybe even a bit nervous. Oh, goodness. Um, well, uh, gosh, you mentioned that this the season's coming out April 15th. Um, April 15th is essentially the day before my podcast, the multi-emory podcast leaves for our, uh, second tour, but it's going to be our first like national tour, North American tour. Um, and that is definitely filling me both with so much excitement because it's just so much fun to like actually be on tour and to do live shows and to meet our listeners, but then also like so nervous because there's so many moving parts to it. I think, but I think that's kind of what's uh, uh, the most exciting for me right now. Yeah. I love that. Um, so we talked about this obviously in the context of relationships. So this answer can be like in that category or something different. Um, what's one belief or opinion that you feel like you've done a complete 180 on something that you used to believe that maybe you no longer do? Oh gosh. Um, I guess related to the sex negativity thing. Um, I used to think that sex workers and people who, uh, uh, work in the pornography industry were bad people and that they were wrong for doing what they're doing. Um, I've done a complete 180 on that now. Um, I mean, I think the context that people do sex work in, especially in the States can like sometimes is not safe and, and not reliable and, and not secure, but, you know, I realize like the, the people who do sex work and the people that who work in pornography often they, they are safer and like more vigilant and mindful in their sexuality and in their safe sex practices than I am. Um, and, uh, yeah, I definitely, that's something that an opinion that really changed for me. Yeah. That's a great one. What do you feel like is frustrating you the most right now? If there's like a thing or an area of your life that you find the most challenging? Gosh, I find the most challenging. Um, I, uh, right now I'm in a period of time of, of, uh, being by myself. Um, I'm going to be reuniting with my partner, Jason, about like a week and a half or so. Um, but when I'm by myself, I work way too much. <laughs> um, I am like really bad at, uh, letting myself rest and like kind of letting my work go, even though I do get a lot of joy and satisfaction out of my work. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's what I'm trying to figure out is like how to get myself to just be better at resting in the meantime. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh -huh. um, when it comes to money, what's one thing that you consider totally worth splurging on? Ooh, uh, probably cheese. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> I don't know what I thought you were going to say. Maybe something travel related, but I love that your answer was no, cheese. That's hilarious. Yeah. Good cheese. Good cheese is always worth it. I've never been disappointed by spending a lot of money on cheese. <laughs> I feel the same way about really good chocolate. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the next question is about books, which let's say two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Oh uh, gosh. Yeah. Okay. There's three. Um, what I reread the most often is leaves of grass by Walt Whitman. Um, I do have a total of a total sucker for poetry for well-written poetry and, uh, my copy of leaves of grass by Walt Whitman, I have 
just beaten up. It is has like post-it notes sticking out of it. It's been highlighted a billion times. It's been dog-eared. Like it's had the binding on it, like taped over with gaff tape a number of times. Um, and I just absolutely love it. Like it's the kind of book that I pull out whenever I'm feeling, if I'm feeling happy or feeling sad or feeling angry or feeling frustrated. And I just like flip through it and like read some kind of beautiful, wonderful uh, piece of wisdom from Walt Whitman. And, and it, is always just like so comforting and wonderful. Um, uh, another book that really changed the course of my life was a book called The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. Um, and Barbara Kingsolver, I also absolutely love her work, but The Poisonwood Bible, I think, was the book that got me to leave organized Christianity when I was about 17, 18. And I've also reread it many times since then and really appreciated it. Um, and it's like, I don't want to pitch it as like a super anti-religious book. It's actually a wonderful piece of fiction that I think anyone can enjoy regardless of their like religious status. But for me, that was the impact that it had on me at that time in my life. Um, and, uh, you know, the other book that I would recommend is a book by the philosopher A.C. Grayling, and it's just called The Good Book. And... Um, what A.C. Grayling did is he kind of uh, pulled a bunch of wisdom from, like, like for instance, the more classical philosophers like Plato, Socrates, um, as well as philosophers from many different cultures around the world, um, from many different times in history. And he kind of wrote what he calls a humanist version of the Bible. Um, and... Uh, it's just like really, really fantastic. I think that for me as like a, you know, a former evangelical Christian and now someone who kind of identifies as more agnostic slash bood, ish is what I, I tell people. Yeah. Um, it really resonates me with me as just having this kind of like very neutral, non, um, you know, not big man in the sky related uh, text that has like a lot of wisdom. And um, yeah, I guess that like a lot of wisdom that's been distilled from like many, many hundreds of years of kind of our most wise human beings across cultures. I'm definitely going to read that. That sounds fantastic. That's so great. Yeah. yeah. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? One call to action, my goodness. Um, especially, I guess, I mean, I usually don't provide more context, but especially <laughs> like with this, like if somebody, if something that you said has resonated or like someone is interested in like, oh, what is the deal with polyamory? Like someone who really is unfamiliar with this, like maybe a first step. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so obviously, you know, I always encourage people to, you know, educate, 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 read books, read a variety of books. Don't just read my book, even though that's very flattering. Um, read other people's books. Uh, listen to podcasts, read blog posts. But beyond that, I think perhaps even more important is um, connecting to some kind of community. Um, if you're in a city that has a non-monogamy or polyamory discussion group, for instance, or even if you're not in a place where you can access that, you know, finding an online community. Um, and that's even if you're just curious, like even if you're not sure if this is something that you actually want to get into, um, still going to a community to meet other people who are practicing this or other people who are exploring this, just to, you know, kind of get a sense of like all the different ways that people do it, the different things that people struggle with, the different benefits that people get out of it. Um, and also very importantly, just to kind of meet 
you know, people who are polyamorous or non-monogamous face to face and realize that everyone's a human being just like you are um, and that we're all in this together. Yeah, I love that. The the What sort of echoes or resonates for me sort of between the lines of what you're saying is like, give yourself permission to be curious that it's fun. Like if you're curious mm-hmm. about something, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to blow up your whole life and do something totally different. It doesn't mean you have to. Maybe you make no changes, but whether it's this topic or something else, if something like piques your interest, yeah, like talk about it, learn more about it. Like that that's, I don't know, it doesn't have to be filled with self-judgment because all of a sudden you're questioning maybe something that you've been told your whole life. Like that's okay. That's like normal. We ask questions. We're humans. We're not robots. Right. So I love that. I feel like there's a lot of good, like giving yourself grace and permission in what you just said. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So what's the best place for people to find you and your work? Um, Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks online maybe? Yeah. um, As far as the connecting, um, I love it when people reach out to me on Twitter, like you did. (laughs) Um, I think that's a good way. uh, So people can go to at Dedeker Winston, which I know is difficult to spell and I'm sorry. Um, Via Twitter, um, you can go to my website, which is DedekerWinston.com. And that's specifically if you're interested in something like coaching. You know, I do work with a lot of people who are first coming to this for the first time and exploring, evaluating, trying to figure out if this works for them, trying to figure out how this would fit into their life. Um, So you can go there for that. Um, Or you can check out my podcast, which is not just me. It's me and and two other uh, co-hosts. and that's the Multiamory podcast. You can go to multiamory.com or again, you can find us on Twitter at Multiamory. Yeah, I love it. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And um, I know I've said this a couple of times, but just for everyone listening, like uh, your work is so good. I highly recommend oh, people listen to the geez. podcast, like do it, go. Um, thank you so much, Dedeker, for taking the time. Of course. Thank you for having me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Janine. Hi, Janine. Hello. You ready to answer some random questions, rapid-fire questions? I'm so ready. (laughs) You're like, I've been waiting all day. I'm so ready. Yeah. Um, So my favorite question first, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Oh, my goodness. I have quite a lot of things that I'm obsessed with um one of the things that I've been obsessed with for a long time and my love for it hasn't abated is color analysis which not very many people have heard of um but it's basically the process of discovering exactly what colors suit you and what don't so you can then wear them in like your clothes and makeup um and so I like a blog about it I have like the color calibrated drapes and I like drape friends and um, family um, and it just it completely changed how I saw myself and how I felt about myself which sounds really dramatic but yeah it's just it's something that I don't think is that well known about but um, I've been obsessed with it for years so that's yeah. so interesting I don't know that I've ever really even thought about that <laughs> you like definitely piqued my curiosity yeah. no it's one of those things that like we all know that like certain colors we put on and go oh no that that's not so good um, and other colors we put on and we think oh I look pretty good today but I like I think that's often as far as anyone gets with it like we don't ever think to take that a bit further and and think well why you know why does this color suit me and are there other colors that might suit me just as much or even more so yeah huh well there you go now I have something new to research yeah (laughs) I love it (laughs) um if you could go back five years and give your younger self some advice what would it be oh okay 
I think I think the advice would be start writing like take that seriously start thinking about that now because I've only really started taking writing seriously in the last couple of years and I've like finished a novel and stuff and I think there'd be no harm in me starting that a bit earlier because I'd just be a bit further along in the process now like I could be you know, maybe I'd even be published by now. Who knows if I thought about it like five years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it's funny to hear you say that because I feel like that's very similar to the advice I'd give myself. It's like, what are you, what are you waiting for? Like, there's always a reason not to do it. Just do it. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Oh my God. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well now I'm going to try not to go down the regret spiral. Um, <laughs> when or in what situation do you feel most yourself? Like when you're totally in your zone and you feel like you're being really truly you, what are you doing? Oh, actually, I'm probably going back to the color analysis. I'm probably draping someone or um, and that's like I feel like I really hit my stride with that when I'm like helping people see what color suit them. So I feel like that's a time when I feel most myself and um, and often and actually talking about writing, um, you know, yeah, I'd say probably those two things, actually. I love it. What's one new thing that you would love to try this year? Ooh, oh, my goodness. I there's a few places that I'd really like to go to in the UK that I haven't been to but I don't know if that counts that's more like I don't know if that of course counts. that counts it's, like, it's not whatever yeah, you answer that's what yeah, counts yeah I feel like I feel like I've been um a bit obsessed with like the writing of late and a bit of a hermit and as a result of that I haven't really <laughs> left the house as much as I usually would so I think there's a few you know just like places nearby to me like I haven't been to Cambridge yet um, which um, I live in the UK. So I'd like to go to see Cambridge. I'd like to go to Devon. I haven't been to Cornwall, like just places that are not really that far because they're like in the same country. But yeah, just a few places I'd like to visit. I love that. I think sometimes so often when we think about travel, we think about places that are really far and not that there's anything wrong with that, mm-hmm. right? It's good to go far away also. But I've been thinking about that too, even just within my home state. Like now there's so many places that are within a couple hours drive that would be so beautiful and it would be a yeah. lot easier to explore closer to home. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The last question, what's one thing that you have recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? What do you find yourself curious about, about other people? Oh my goodness. Um, I, I read an article on the BBC today that someone shared on Facebook about people who have had kids, but actually regret that decision and how much of a taboo that is and how difficult that is. And so I think my answer to that question would be parenting. I wish someone were more like I wish people were more honest about parenting and I say this as someone who hasn't had their own children I like I'm a um a step parent but I don't have like biological children of my own and I'm an auntie um and like I looked after kids when I was little and stuff and I just think like parenting is hard and I don't think I think society is quite pro-natalist and I think that not enough people realize that it's actually a choice like yes of course you can have kids if you want like if you know there's always ways of of having kids even if you can't have them biologically you can adopt whatever but also you can choose not to do that I think there isn't enough conversation about like childlessness and 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 that being a natural choice that you you decide to make like actually you know I don't think I will have kids because it's you know such a lot of time and money that you have to put into them instead I'm going to do something a bit different like I wish we I I wish there was more honesty around that yeah, I love that. I mean, yeah, that's my choice. I'm not having kids. So I totally agree. Like wishing mm. more people would talk about that. And it's interesting when you talk about that article. Uh, that's it. When we talk about like, oh, what are taboo subject, subjects to discuss? I feel like that's one that doesn't come up. But it's a huge one. What you just oh, said totally. about people who have yes. kids and regret it. Like nobody talks about that. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, no. I feel like that's like one of the final taboos. Like, I don't know anyone that's said 
like I, I read about it online sometimes like if you go on mum's net and do a bit of a search you can find people admitting that they regret their choices but no one ever talks about that like in real life in person because it's just too it's too big and too scary mm, yeah oh that's such a good answer so you're a member of our patreon support squad which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season and i would love for you to share why you decided to support the show Oh, it was just a take my money situation. Um, we need more. <laughs> we need more real talk in the world, um, and I need reminding that I can do hard things on a fairly regular basis. So, listening to your podcast helps me think that. Um, and it's, it's also the thing randomly that I listen to as I blast through like my housework and stuff, and that like your podcast keeps me sane in that, in that sense. So, and obviously, I want it to continue. And so, sending money via Patreon is is a way in which I can do that. I love that. Thank you so much. Do you have a favorite thing about um, being in the community? Anything you like the best? Oh, I love the book recommendations, actually, because I'm all I've, I loved um, your Esther. You recommended Esther Perel mating in captivity. I loved that. Um, so I love. Yeah, I love the book recommendations. And I actually love the outros. I really look forward to the outros. <laughs> that's fun yeah it's become I mean some I've said this before but like I started having community members on the outros as basically like a completely selfish thing as a way to get to know the people in the community better right and but it's been neat to hear exactly what you just said from other people too that they think that they've told me oh it's neat to like get to know the other people in the community in this way so you're not the only one that's enjoying listening to them so that makes me happy um, so thanks for that. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.